Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're listening. This morning, we're going to be playing the third and final part of Brandon Cox's and my interview with Dr. Michael Lacona, a world-renowned expert on the evidence for the resurrection and many other apologetical issues. He is a phenomenal apologist. He's written many incredible books. I would encourage you to go to Amazon.com and type in Dr. Licona, L-I-C-O-N-A, and check out some of his books. But this is the third part of our interview with Dr. Licona. Today we're going to be discussing the evidence for the resurrection, supposed biblical contradictions, and things like that. It's going to be an exciting interview, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. I hope that you'll enjoy it. So here's the interview. What about supposed contradictions in the New Testament? For example, Ehrman, if I'm not mistaken, claims the seeming discrepancy between the Synoptic Gospels and John concerning the date of Jesus' death drove him from faith. In the same book, he also says that the problem of pain drove him from faith. And in the same book, he also admits that many of the scholars looking at the same evidence come to different conclusions than he does, namely Christian conclusions. But I guess the main concern that I have is, what about those supposed contradictions, and specifically that one? How can that be resolved? Well, some of them we we can only present, you know, possibilities. I've read some books that talk about this. A lot of them will try to deal with the different way in which the time of crucifixion differs. John says after the sixth hour, and Mark says after the third hour. And a lot of evangelicals try to account for that by saying, well, one's going by a Roman calendar, the other by a Jewish calendar clock. That's possible, I suppose, but I think there's some better answers for that. Keener, Craig Keener, in his commentary on John, I think provides a a very plausible solution, and one which is uh, right in accord with the writing conventions, the literary conventions of ancient biography of that day. His explanation can account for not only the differences in reporting the time of crucifixion, but also the day. The way Keener describes it is he says what's in the Synoptic Gospels is probably true, historically speaking, if we had been there. He's crucified the day after the Passover meal. And what John has done is he has displaced that event and replanted it chronologically in a different spot in order to make a theological point. And that point would be that Jesus is our Passover lamb, a theme that Paul, who wrote before any of the Gospels, uh, proclaimed. And the reason they changed the time would be because um, the Mishnah, which comes around in the second century, uh, says that when the Passover fell on a Sabbath, um, you had then the Passover sacrifice, and then you had the typical burnt offering sacrifice, which would also be given that day. And so in order to accommodate the sacrifices, the burnt offerings for the Sabbath would be moved back two hours. In other words, they're typically done at 2.30 in the afternoon, so they're moved back two hours to about 12.30, or just afternoon. So what John would be saying here, symbolically or theological point he's trying to make, is that Jesus is the burnt offering for our sins and our Passover lamb. And I think that that is entirely uh, possible, and I think it's a plausible explanation uh, for this. Plutarch, another ancient author, does similar things, but instead of doing it 
um, displacing an event from its original context and and replanting it in another, transplanting it in another uh, chronological place. He does this to make political points regarding the character of his person rather than theological points, as John has done. So I think that's entirely possible. Another possibility, and it's posited by David Instone Brewer at uh, Tyndale House, uh, Cambridge, and he says in a very detailed study that he's done that I find very plausible and possible, he shows that in some of uh, the Talmud, again, it's a source that's written 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, he shows from discussion that's going on between some rabbis that in the first century, prior to the discussion or destruction of the temple, there were Jews who were celebrating the Passover a day earlier because their understanding of the calendar differed from the typical understanding of the calendar, and they thought the correct day to celebrate Passover was the day before. Uh, that the actual day of Passover was a day prior to when the actual Passover was offered. So the debate was, should we allow them to do their sacrifices a day early? And they talked about how, no, they wanted to prohibit it, and how people lied and said, hey, they're doing the sacrifice for another reason, but it was actually for the Passover. And so in that way, both the synoptics and John would have been correct, because the synoptics, Jesus would have been part of this small group that celebrated the Passover a day earlier because they thought the actual Passover should have been celebrated that day, whereas the Jewish leadership at that point would have put it on the next day. So both could have been true. I find that plausible. Which one do I find more plausible at this point? I don't know. It doesn't really matter to me, to be honest with you. Both fall within what ancient biography would have done in order to illustrate character and report history in that day. So that's how I would look at it. If Herman's going to reject Christianity or the historical reliability of the Gospels because of something like that, I think it's very premature that he would have come to that conclusion. And again, elsewhere, he mentions that the problem of pain was the real issue that drove him. No matter what, this brings up the issue of divergent accounts, and we all know that divergent accounts are not the problem that some would make them out to be, but I thought I'd ask you, what about divergent accounts, specifically concerning the resurrection? We just discussed one concerning Jesus's death or time of death. What about other divergent accounts and divergent accounts in general? For example, the number of angels, things like that. What's going on with these divergent accounts that we see in the New Testament accounts? Great question, and one I'm very excited to, to discuss since this has been the subject of my research for the last five years. Um, before I even say something like that, though, let me say something about the problem of evil, pain, and suffering, which you're right. Ehrman does say in his book, God's Problem, this is the main reason why he gave up his Christian faith. Ehrman, in that book, and by the way, he has not received good reviews of that book, even from the skeptical community. It is a very lame argument that he presents in there. So he'll say, hey, the Bible does present different explanations for why there's evil, pain, and suffering in our world, and these reasons contradict themselves. So, for example, you've got the Genesis account that's saying it's because Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and the original sin came into the picture, and that's why we have evil, pain, and suffering. Then you've got Job, you know, where God says, well, this is because Satan was wanted to test Job, and God allowed it to happen. Or you've got Hebrews that says it's for disciplining 
and Christian, that's why you go through these painful experiences. And then you have the psalmist who says it's evil men. And then you have Jesus saying, you know, if you're a believer and follower of me, you're going to be persecuted. And all of these are contradictory. Well, I don't see them at all as being contradictory. I think they're completely compatible. It's just that we have, there are different reasons at different times why people experience evil, pain, and suffering in their life. You could experience at one point because God is disciplining. You could experience at another point simply because you are a follower of Jesus. We do have sin in our lives or evil and pain and suffering in the world because of sin as a result of the fall of man. I don't at all see these as contradictory. So, again, I think he it was bad reasoning on Ehrman's part that led him to reject Christianity. Now, about differences. This is something I've spent, like I said, the last five years investigating. One thing I've done is to, and I'm still in the process of reading through the Gospels multiple times, in Greek, so I started that and was just doing it at leisure. So I, I've gotten through, let's see, Matthew eight times, Mark seven times. I'm in my sixth time through Luke now, and I've gone through John four times. And my goal is to get through each of them about ten times. As I do this, it really causes me to slow down and to look at these accounts a lot more carefully. And when I do, I'm starting to see differences all over the place, more than I ever expected. And I've made a list of the ones I've seen. That list continues to grow, but right now it is a little over 60 pages. And then what I've also been doing is reading ancient biographies to understand the kind of flexibility, the kind of biographical license that ancient biographers used with their compositional devices, the way they wrote. What's interesting is of the 80 to 100 biographies written near the time of Jesus on different figures in the ancient world, Plutarch wrote more that have survived than anyone else. We have 50 of his biographies, they're called Lives, that have survived. And a lot of what we know about the Greco-Roman world comes from Plutarch. Of these 50 lives, nine of them involve people who lived at the same time and who knew one another. They're people involved in events that led to the fall of the Roman Republic, people like Caesar, Cicero, Crassus, Pompey, Brutus, Antony, people like that. And so as a result, by looking at these very carefully, you'll notice that Plutarch often tells the same story in multiple lives. So the assassination of Julius Caesar, I think he tells four times. The Catalinarian conspiracy, he tells six times, at least different points within it. So by comparing these, you can see how not different authors told the same story differently, but how the same author, usually working with the same sources, told the same story differently. And I've been able to identify about 50 such stories within these nine relevant lives that Plutarch tells two or more times. And as I'm going through these, and I'm almost halfway through them now, and you can imagine this has just been an exorbitant amount of work, I start to see patterns with the way that Plutarch is telling stories and retelling them. And because I've spent so much time in the Gospels, I notice that a lot of the differences that are contained or listed in these more than 60 pages are the same kind of differences that we find in the way Plutarch tells the same story. So, for example, you mentioned the number of angels at the tomb. Matthew and Mark say there's one. Luke and John say there's two. Let me give one other example before I explain Plutarch. When John says that Mary Magdalene came back 
he only reports Mary, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke say multiple women. John says that Peter and the beloved disciple got up and ran to the tomb and found it like Mary said. Whereas in the Gospel of Luke, it says that Peter got up and ran to the tomb and found it as the women said. So you got another example there. Again, Matthew, Mark, one angel, Luke and John, two angels. John, two people ran to the tomb, Peter and the beloved disciple, Luke, Peter ran to the tomb. Same kind of thing. Well, I could give multiple examples in Plutarch. This is the most common compositional device that I've found up to this point of the eight that I've seen. This, we could call it spotlighting. And just like on stage when you watch a play and there might be multiple people around, but the spotlight could shine on one person to focus and bring attention to that person, you know there's other people on stage but all the attention comes on that one person to the exclusion of the others. What Plutarch does, there are multiple occasions in these nine lives where Plutarch knows and he will report of multiple people being present at an event in one case, but when he reports the same story in another one of his lives, he only mentions one person, usually the person, the primary person there, or the person who's doing the speaking. The primary person is stature, too. They're the ones that are mentioned, and the others aren't even mentioned. He'll leave the impression that that person that he's focusing on is the only person doing the action. Whereas, again, in another of his lives, he might mention that there were several involved. I think that this is exactly what we find when it comes to the number of angels at the tomb and with who ran to the tomb and how many women went to the tomb. I think this is also confirmed as virtually certain what's going on in some cases, in at least two of these three cases in the Gospels. In John chapter 20, it says Mary Magdalene came back and said to the beloved disciple and, and Peter, they've taken the Lord and we don't know where they laid him. Well, who's we? That could easily mean other women. What about, you know, it says the beloved disciple and Peter ran to the tomb in John, but in Luke it says Peter. Well, just 12 verses later, when Jesus is talking to the Emmaus disciples, and they're explaining the events of that weekend, they say, okay, we thought Jesus was going to be the Messiah. The Romans crucified him on Friday. But this morning, our women went to the tomb, and they found it empty. They saw angels that said he'd been raised from the dead. Then some of our own ran to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. Well, wait a minute, Luke, just 12 verses later, earlier, you only mentioned Peter. That's correct. He's spotlighting there. But he's obviously aware that others were present. So in terms of those three discrepancies within the resurrection narrative, then there are others that we could talk about. The number of angels at the tomb, the number of women that went to the tomb, and who ran to the tomb after the women informed them. All three of these are easily accounted for by spotlighting, which we see going on time after time after time after time in Plutarch, another biographer of the same time period. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. We're interviewing Dr. Mike Lacona this morning, a world-renowned apologist, and I hope you'll listen to the rest of the show. So we've talked a little bit about the resurrection and its significance and all that, but kind of... Going beyond that, what about the specific evidence for the resurrection? 
Can we really trust that Jesus rose from the dead with certainty? I think we can, with reasonable certainty, not absolute certainty. That's historically speaking. We can't prove anything with absolute certainty. The only way you could do that would be to get into a time machine, return to the past, and see it with your own eyes. But we can't do that. There is no time machine for us to get into and verify conclusions. So you have to go by strictly controlled historical method or whatever method you're using within that particular discipline, historical method within history. And that gives you conclusions with varying degrees of historical certainty. Now, basically, in historical method, what you do is you start off with facts that are so strongly evidenced that virtually everyone agrees with them. This is called historical bedrock, and the reason you do that is because you want to minimize the negative impact your bias might bring to an investigation. So if you start off by only using those facts that virtually everyone agrees upon, you know that even if because you do have bias, you're going to limit its impact because even skeptics, those who don't believe in your conclusion, grant the same facts. And then you're going to go by method, and you're going to subject hypotheses to strictly controlled historical methods. You want to see how well they fulfill certain criteria that are typically used by historians. Those criteria would be explanatory scope. Does the hypothesis account for all of the known facts, or how well does it do it? A second is called explanatory power. Given the truth of a hypothesis, what we have is what we would expect. So, for example, the hypothesis that Jesus rose from the dead, would it comfortably account for things such as shortly after Jesus' death, his disciples had experiences in individual and in group settings that they interpreted as appearances of the risen Jesus to them, that they came to the belief that Jesus had been raised physically, bodily from the dead, that even a skeptic, a persecutor of the church named Paul, who hated Christianity, who thought Jesus was a false prophet, all of a sudden he becomes a follower of Jesus because he has an experience that he believes and is convinced is the risen Jesus who had appeared to him. These fit perfectly. These are the kinds of things we would expect, given the truth of the resurrection hypothesis. But given the truth of the hypothesis that Jesus did not rise from the dead, we do not expect for people to have group experiences in which they say Jesus rose from the dead. We don't expect a skeptic, Paul, um, to convert to Christianity because of an experience that he has. We just don't expect these things. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, what we expect is nothing, pretty much. No hallucinations, maybe one, at most two of the disciples experience a visual hallucination of Jesus. The band of Christians fall apart, they go to find another messianic figure, or they just go home. That's what we expect. That is not what we get. And so, therefore, the resurrection hypothesis is superior to the hypothesis that Jesus did not rise from the dead in terms of explanatory power. A third criterion is called less ad hoc. An ad hoc hypothesis is one that you would never think of, other than for any other reason that it would explain the fact. Say, like a hallucination hypothesis, that would be very ad hoc and in various different ways. Resurrection hypothesis isn't. Plausibility is the fourth criterion. Is it compatible with our relevant background knowledge? Certainly group hallucinations, or 100% of the percipients experiencing hallucinations. This is very contrary to our background knowledge from the uh, mental health community on the nature of hallucinations. So the hallucination hypothesis very implausible. It not only lacks plausibility, it's actually in the negative column. It's implausible. 
what about the resurrection? You know, if Jesus is the hypothesis, Jesus rose from that, is that plausible or implausible? Well, you have to determine what's our background knowledge. Well, we know people don't, aren't raised from the dead by natural causes. That has nothing to do with whether Jesus was raised by supernatural cause. And so I don't see the resurrection as implausible. I, I don't know if it's plausible. But it's certainly, at least on a scale, if we put it at zero in plausibility, it's not the negative column. And so it's still superior to, say, the hallucination hypothesis, which has negative plausibility. And so when you look at it in the end, the resurrection hypothesis has greater explanatory scope, greater explanatory power. It's less ad hoc and it's more plausible than, say, the hallucination hypothesis and just about every other competing or alternative hypothesis. And so you look at it and say, well, if that's the case, if it does better in fulfilling those criteria than competing hypotheses, then this is probably what occurred. And so that's how historical investigation is done. Anything else you'd like to say about some of those alternative theories which circumvent the evidence for the resurrection? Well, I think probably the one that is growing in its popularity or use today amongst scholars, and I think it's really the only respectable alternate explanation is to say, well, we don't really, and this is like what the late Jewish scholar Gezer Vermesh offered. He said, you know, we just don't know if Jesus rose from the dead. The evidence just isn't good enough to say one way or another. And so that just leaves them in an agnosticism. They won't say that he rose. They won't say that he didn't rise. In this agnosticism, we just don't have enough evidence. I think that's mistaken, too. What it does is it ignores strictly controlled historical methods. So they talk about agnosticism, or we don't have enough evidence, but they don't subject these hypotheses to critical examination by weighing them according to the criteria used for the best explanation. When you do it, you find that the resurrection is far superior as a hypothesis to any others. So you can reject the resurrection if you want on philosophical or theological grounds, but it's unreasonable to do so on historical grounds. So is Jesus the only way to God, salvation, and heaven? That's a big question. I think that he is. And Mm -hmm. the way you would look at this is you'd say, what did Jesus himself claim? And when you look throughout the Gospels, and even the other, the early New Testament literature, like the writings of Paul, you see that when they do comment on it, they are a single voice in saying that Jesus is the only way to God. There is no other way. You have to go through Jesus. And I think that when you have such unanimous teaching on it in the New Testament, the only real way to explain that, the best way, would be to say that Jesus himself made such claims as is reported in the New Testament. So, um, yeah, I think he did. Those who would say he didn't certainly bear the burden of proof. And they're going to have to go against a lot because, again, every time a New Testament author teaches on this, it's Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. What else would you like to communicate to our audience this morning? Well, I'd say that this is a very, you know, This is a very involved topic. It's a very important one. I would say that our worldview is the most important decision we can make in our life. And the reason being is because if God exists, and if he requires us to follow him, as Jesus says, this decision actually impacts not only our life, but even more importantly, our eternity. And so it is certainly worth getting it right. Um, Now, if Hinduism and reincarnation is correct, then we're going to have many opportunities. But 
if it's not, and if Christianity or Islam is correct, we only have one shot at this thing. And so I want to do my best to get it right. And so I do think it's worth looking at. You know, a lot of people will spend their entire lives trying to figure this out. I'm one of those, I guess. But a lot of people don't want to spend that kind of time. They're just not that interested. Well, I'd say look at the evidence. Break it down and just look at the evidence. If you want to know if Jesus rose from the dead, I've written a very large book on the topic, but it's very readable. The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach, published by IVP Academic. I've tried to be as objective as possible. I lay everything out. I lay my method out. What is historical knowledge? How do we obtain it? To what extent can we obtain it? What's the method? I subject the different hypotheses to that method. I look at things such as our sources, how confident we can be with certain sources, what are the facts that are disputed or virtually undisputed that we can get from those sources, and then we formulate hypotheses, the major ones of today, and we examine those and weigh those according to the historical method. If Jesus rose from the dead, at least we can know that Christianity is true and other religions are false. If Jesus did not rise, then Christianity is false and there's another worldview that's correct. I think the evidence points to the resurrection of Jesus, so if you can come to the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead, then you know what's the correct worldview, become a follower of Jesus, and you've solved the issue for yourself. Dr. Lacona, it's been a wonderful conversation, and I'm just so thankful that you gave us so much of your time. Well, guys, keep up the great work. Good okay. talking with you. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. God bless you guys. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed what Dr. Lacona had to say today. The evidence is overwhelming for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And like Lacona said, if Jesus really did die and rise again, and if the evidence shows us that that is the case, then we can confidently put our faith in him for our salvation. We can trust whatever he said, since he alone proved what he said by backing it up, by conquering death. What an incredible thing that somebody could promise to conquer death and then come through on that promise and then make that offer to you and me. And the Bible says that God loves you and that he has loved you with an everlasting, infinite love and that he has a wonderful plan for your life and that he desires to give you hope, that he desires to live in personal relationship with you. This is a phenomenal claim, again, backed up by the evidence and backed up by Christ's own conquering of death. And he tells you that he loves you. He tells you that God loves you, but that you are sinful and I am sinful and all those you see are sinful. In fact, the Bible says that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as imperfect, sinful people, we cannot be with a perfect God. And for that very reason, God himself became a man. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life on this planet and died the death that I deserved to pay for my sins and to pay for your sins so that anyone who puts their faith and their trust in him could begin a relationship with him, could be adopted into his family, could experience hope, could experience a purpose, could experience the abundant life he promised and be confident that when they die, they'll be with him forever and eternity in heaven. I would encourage you, if you've never taken that step before, to say, Jesus, I put my faith and my trust in you. Please come into my life. Please be my Savior and Lord. Please make me the kind of person that you want me to be. I pray you'll take that step this morning.
I would also like to invite you to church. Go to godsolutionshow.com to see a list of local churches that you could visit. And please join us this week for Connect at Noble 125 on Tuesday at 6 p.m. Again, Noble 125, Tuesday at 6 p.m. It'll be a phenomenal time. I would encourage you to go to risenjesus.com to find out more about Dr. Michael Lacona. Again, visit risenjesus.com. And also go to Amazon and look up Michael Lacona. Again, Michael Lacona, Lacona spelled L-I-C-O-N-A, and find some of his books and buy some of those books and read them. Like we always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. I hope that the interview with Dr. Lacona proved that point to you yet again. The evidence is overwhelmingly supportive of the claims of Christianity. And Jesus truly did live on this earth. He truly did die for your sins and mine. And he truly did rise from the dead, conquering death, so that anyone who puts their faith in him could have eternal life. Thanks again for listening. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon.